Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Danny Brassell. Good morning to you, I believe it is. Good morning. Indeed. Good morning, Pete. Thanks for having me and thanks for all you do to inspire people. Oh, thank you. Listen, it's always it's always awesome to have uh, people on, especially from little old Colorado. So, and we've we've had a bit of chat here about the connections to Ireland. So it's uh, pretty fascinating, you know. So, listen, welcome to the show, Danny. Would you be kindness to tell us who are you, what do you do, and where are you from? Well, I'm I'm Dr. Danny Brussell. Thank you, Pete, for that. And uh, currently, I'm in Colorado. Uh, I've spent most of my career living in Los Angeles, but I'm from all over the place and uh, I travel all around the world. Uh, I'd shared with you earlier uh, one of my business partners, uh, uh, Dermot Hudner, is based in Limerick. Uh, he's got a great program that we've uh, we've attached to. Um, I basically. Uh, my my mission is to bring the joy back in education. I, I find that most schools do an adequate job of teaching kids how to read. But the question I always ask people is, what good is it teaching kids how to read if they never want to read? I teach kids why to read because I've never had to tell a kid, go watch TV. I've never had to tell a kid, go play a video game. And I never want to have to tell a kid, go read a book. I want them to choose to do it on their own because they love it. And so that's my job is making reading fun. Uh, and while I'm talking about the kids, I mean, I do it with adults as well. Uh, you know, I've, I've done plenty of research in this area. And while there's plenty of readers that are not necessarily leaders, I have never read about an effective leader in history that was also not an avid reader. So uh, just spreading uh, a lot of joy. Reading gives us information. It gives us inspiration. And uh, hopefully, uh, uh, the world would be a lot better place if uh, people would uh, spend a little bit more time reading, I think. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, I mean, that from what you've said already, it sounds like it's very pleasure based. So instead of pain bases, you have to read, you should read, you could read all the rest. It's, you know, want to read, you know, it's, it's pleasure side, right? That, that seems to be a big change there. Absolutely, Pete. I think that's where schools uh, have the problem. Uh, you know, I, I taught all grade levels and I, I noticed that my little ones, my kindergartners go to school. They're so excited. They'll, they, they actually go to bed with their backpacks on. They're so excited to get back to school the next day. And it only takes until about middle school when the kids are teenagers, when all of a sudden they're trying to get sick. And I'm like, what just happened in those eight years to get that kid to hate school so much? And I, I, I basically think about my own experiences in school and they force you to read certain things. And I'm not saying I, I remember in high school, um, I had secondary school. I had to read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I'm not putting down that book. It's a fine book. I'm sure there's plenty of people that love it. It's the truth. It, it's not the true story. It's a story of uh, Hester Prynne commits adultery. So she's forced to wear an A on her chest. 
And I asked my teacher if I could wear a B on my chest because I was so bored reading it. And it was being forced to read things like that that got me to hate reading. And this is one of the points I make to people. Our research is really clear on this. It doesn't matter what you read. What matters is how much you read. It doesn't matter if you're reading James Joyce or James and the Giant Peach. People who read more read better. And we're going to have a lot more success with students of all ages if we base their reading on their own interest. Okay. So, I mean, what, I've, what I think I've picked up there is it's as much about the content. So the reading itself is relatively generic. Am I right in saying that? Different yeah, styles, yeah. fair enough. But the content is the bit that seems to be making the difference here. Is that fair enough? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I point this out to, to parents. The little, the little boy who only reads Captain Underpants is going to be a better reader than the little boy who refuses to anything, to read anything. I mean, Captain Underpants is the gateway drug to Shakespeare. We got to get him hooked first, though. Right. OK, so it's it's exactly that. So it's it's about trying to build up the resilience, build up the knowledge base, build up the experience to to, to get to that. Maybe, so I suppose a basic question, I, I mean, I would sort of say up front, I mean, I'm dyslexic myself. So, you know, reading for me is is not something that will comes naturally per se. You know, mm -hmm. It takes a little bit more effort. It's not that I can't, but it just takes a little bit more effort than than, uh, than most and such. But first of all, what what is the, the purpose of reading? Sound like a basic well, to question. me, the purpose of reading, it, it, we read for different reasons. We, we read for enlightenment. We read for information. We read for pleasure. And, um, you know, I always point this out to people because I've worked with plenty of dyslexic students. And I always tell people all reading disabilities are curable. Um, and you're in good. You're in very good company, Pete. I mean, uh, if you look at the Fortune 500 CEOs around the world, over half of them are dyslexic. Uh, people like uh, so Richard Branson is a famous example of a dyslexic. Actually, when you research all fields, you'll find famous people in all fields. Uh, if you look at uh, entertainment, uh, uh, celebrities like uh, Sylvester Stallone and Tom Cruise and Whoopi Goldberg, they're all dyslexic. Uh, the founding father of the United States, George Washington, was dyslexic. Uh, so you're in good company. And actually, when I'm working with dyslexic, and I, I, I'd be interested to know this about you, Pete, dyslexics usually, they, first of all, they're very successful because they come up with alternative strategies. They're very um, uh, curious and, and looking for, I mean, I'll see dyslexics that memorize entire passages just to avoid reading. But really one of the ways that dyslexics, uh, I try to turn them on to reading is your auditory processing is better than your visual processing when it comes to text. And so I always tell people, you know, uh, audiobooks are just as as legitimate as reading it on your own. I mean, use your your car or taking the train to work as your mobile university and listen to audiobooks. And to me, that's that's what's going to help you. Um, you know, long answer to your short question. The purpose of reading to me. It's only reading when we choose to do it for ourselves. You know, the happiest day of my life, besides my wedding day, was when I earned my, my doctorate. My wife was like, why are you so happy? And I said, because from now on, I pick the books. And to me, that's what reading is, is, uh, you know, I never used to read in school. I read voraciously now because I'm reading things that I'm interested in. Uh, I mean, I read. I love sports, so I'll read anything about sports. I'll read the newspaper. I'll read books about famous people. I love biographies. Uh, I love reading about uh, 
uh, famous uh, people in government and in business and everything. And I love uh, personal development books, uh, you know, so I, and then since I have uh, one of the world's leading uh, um, uh, book clubs, I'm forced to read all kinds of things that I'm not usually interested in. I've learned all kinds of strategies on what to do when I'm not completely interested in a book. And then probably my best strategy, Pete, and you might get a kick out of this is I still, I, I had read a, a biography on president uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, before I read his biography, I only knew two things about Teddy Roosevelt. I knew that teddy bears were named after him. And for some reason, his face was on Mount Rushmore. Well, when I read Edmund Morris's The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, I couldn't believe all the things I learned about him. First of all, um, you talk about a six-year period in a person's life. When he was 36 years old, he was uh, police commissioner of New York City. When he was 37, he was assistant secretary of the United States Navy. When he was 38, he led the Rough Riders up San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War. When he was 40, he was elected governor of New York, and he didn't even have an affair. When he was 42, he was elected vice president of the United States. Later that year, following the assassination of President McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt became then and to this day the youngest president in American history. I mean... Uh, I, that's a pretty good six year period. I've gone almost three months without I get a parking ticket and I feel pretty proud of myself. This guy set the bar pretty high, but what amazed me about the book was he was sick as a kid. And so he spent all of his time reading. He had, he was a speed reader. He had a photographic memory and he could read in six languages. They say you could give him a book, an 800 page book in Latin at dinner. And he would quote pages to you at the breakfast table. They estimate by the time he was 30 years old, Teddy Roosevelt had read over 20,000 books. And so when I say that to my, my students, the little ones are like, wow. And I'm like, okay, so we got to read a lot of kid books. I mean, so I tell people I read 10 books a day now. I mean, many of them are scratch and snip and pop up, but I do read 10 books a day, but it actually is a little tip. I give people before I go to parties, uh, just to look intelligent, I'll stop by the bookstore and go to the children's section and I'll read picture biographies about famous living people. And then I'm, you know, at parties and I'm, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, Elon Musk is from South Africa originally. People, oh, tell me about Elon Musk. And it's, I, I read a 32 page picture book about Elon Musk. And, and a lot of times those picture books are what get me interested in then reading an adult level book about the person. But those are just some of the little quick little tricks I try to share with, uh, with adults as well as kids. But, I mean, that's a really interesting thing. So, I mean, because not only do you have reading, you have also then the understanding or understanding and then interpretation and then internal translation, I assume, because we, we've got to liken it into something that we know, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, you know, I love nonfiction. I find, uh, you know, I always tell people four out of five of your struggling and reluctant readers are boys and boys are a little bit different than girls and the things that they like to read. And again, this is generalization. There's everybody's a little bit different, but generally boys like to read about how things operate and they like to read about true things and uh, girls are much more fiction oriented. That's why I always tell novelists, I'm like, if you're, if you're going to write a novel, make sure women like it because women are the ones that buy uh, most of our books. Matter of fact, I was just reading the statistics in America. It's uh, now over 60% of college students are women. I'm telling the boys that glass, that glass ceiling is about to burst. You're going to be working for a woman very soon. Uh, you and I were talking about uh, different generations and all the. I mean, it's about to happen. I, I hope people uh, pay attention to that. Um, and so, you know, like, for example, 
I have a wife and three kids and we all read different things together. And so um, with my oldest daughter, we're reading um, uh, Shadow and Bones is a, a series of books, a really cool adventure series she's into. My son, we're reading The Killer Angels by Michael Shira, which is about the Battle of Gettysburg. And he wants to find out more about the Battle of Gettysburg. And then my youngest daughter, we're reading together Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne, which was one of my favorite books of all time, because uh, I believe, you know, uh, uh, travel is the most important thing uh, in your education. Actually, a lot of people don't know this. Jules Verne never left France his entire life, and he wrote the definitive book on travel. And uh, there's a great children's book called It Can't Be Done, Nellie Bly, about Nellie Bly, who was really one of the first investigative journalists in America. She was a woman, and she had read Around the World in 80 Days, and her, her editor at the New York World, a guy by the name of Joseph Pulitzer, said, It can't be done, Nellie Bly. But he, he thought, oh, there's a way to make a buck here. And so he allowed her to try and go around the world in 80 days. And she failed to go around the world in 80 days. She did it in 72 days. And the best part of the story was one of the first people she visited, she went through France and she visited Jules Verne. And he was tickled that not only was somebody trying to do it, but that it was a woman. And uh, so when I'm reading with my students, I tell them stories like that because now they're even more interested in the story. Uh, and then my wife, um, she loves the, the Outlander series by Diana Gabaldon. She likes it so much. We actually, uh, before the pandemic, uh, flew to Scotland to travel around Scotland because the first book takes place in Scotland. The second, the other books take place, they, they take place all over the place, North Carolina and uh, everywhere. But uh, that's what reading is supposed to do. I mean, look at J.K. Rowling. She probably created tons of tourist attractions throughout the uh, England and Scotland, even Portugal. She wrote the books in, uh, I believe it was a live a bookstore in uh, in Lisbon, in Portugal. Uh, but uh, you know, you want to go. Oh, where's the university where uh, it's the basis of Hogwarts and things like that? That's what I like doing. I like being around people that are talking books. And when I'm not around people that are talking books, I talk books to try and get them interested in something. I, but I got to find out what they're interested in first. And I I have plenty of. Uh, ideas at my disposal once I find uh, what a person's interests are. So, I mean, what I'm hearing there is it's a lot of it's relate relatability. So it's, it's all about, as you say, the, the person's interest, what they're naturally going to want to read um, and pick up in, in their own uh, pastime. And that's, that will then naturally create a thirst or drive to do more, right? Is that, they're all linked together? Absolutely. I always tell parents and teachers, uh, you got to eavesdrop. If you hear your kids talking about, uh, horse racing, get them books about horse racing. If they're talking about Jennifer Lopez, get a biography on JLo, you know, you figure out what they're into. I mean, it, again, my three kids are all completely different and they're interested in their own things. And so I have to, I have to build on whatever they're interested in. They get excited. Plus, there's that bonding between me and each child that, Hey, you know, it's, I, I was blessed. Um, I, I hated reading growing up. You know, uh, my father was a librarian. I always hated the public library. The library always had uncomfortable furniture. It smelled funny. There was always some elderly woman telling me to be quiet in the public library. There's always some homeless guy who thinks he's a vampire hanging out by the bookshelves. I hated the public library. It wasn't until I was in middle school in seventh grade. Uh, my reading teacher was a guy by the name of Will Hobbs. Will wound up becoming one of the best-selling young adult authors in the world. He writes books that are especially popular with teenage boys, a lot of outdoor adventure books. But Will was the guy to get me interested in reading for the first time. 
It's amazing, Pete. He had 5,000 books in his classroom. And every day at the beginning of class, he would tell us what he was reading. We would tell him what we were reading. And the rest of the 50-minute period, we read. Whenever we finished a book, we'd take it up to Mr. Hobbs. He'd put down the book he was reading. He'd look through our book, ask us three or four questions. And if he was satisfied with our answer, Answers, he gave us a point. Every book up to 200 pages is worth one point. Every extra 100 pages is worth another point. You needed 25 points to get an A, and the top five point totals had their names written on the board. And I wanted my name written on that board. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, 500-page book, a four-point book, also an excellent Disney film starring James Mason and Kirk Douglas. I didn't really feel like reading a 500 page book. So I took the book up to Mr. Hobbs. He asked me four questions and I learned a valuable lesson that day, Pete. Books aren't always like the movies. And guess what Mr. Hobbs did? He gave me the four points. And that's when I learned a great teaching strategy. Guilt works because I read every word of every page of every book from that point forward. Wound up with 44 points, went well above and beyond what I had to do. He used the single greatest strategy I've ever seen a teacher use to get a kid excited about reading. He found out what I was interested in, which was football. And at least once a week, he'd give me a football book and say, hey, Danny, I was thinking of you when I was reading this. What are the odds I open up that book? In my experience with all age levels, 100%. Person might not read it, but they're definitely going to open it up. And also in my experience, by about the third or fourth time I do that with a person, they're going to try and read that book because there's nothing more powerful than somebody significant in your life, a parent, a teacher, a coach, a pastor, uh, an older sibling, a buddy saying, you know what? I was thinking of you when I was reading this. And so that's one of the basic strategies I try to train people. And then the other thing is I think a lot of people just don't know all the great books out there. You know, uh, in America, it drives me nuts. We're taught to finish what we start. I'm like, well, that's stupid. I mean, think of a book like a piece of food. If you take a bite, you're like, oh, man, that's nasty. Maybe it gets better. Oh, no, it's nasty. No, you know, put it down. If you don't like the first chapter in a book, you're probably not going to like the second chapter. There were over four million books written last year in English. Some of them are pretty good. Don't waste your time on a book you're not interested in. You know, I, I absolve you of that book. You know, it drives me nuts. People have these large books on their bedside tables that they've been struggling on for three years. Get another one. Get something you're interested in. I mean, hey, and if you're not a book reader, read the newspaper, read uh, read magazines. I don't care what you're... I, I, I used to volunteer at a, a juvenile detention facility for teenage girls. And the way I got them hooked on reading, this was kind of a rough bunch of girls. They People are like, oh, you're not going to get through to them. And I was trying to figure out what would get them interested. And they like to put each other down. And so what I did is in the back of Us Magazine, there's this funny section called the Fashion Police where they have comedians uh, tear apart celebrities on the, on the red carpet wearing different outfits. And so I started getting the girls reading that. That was it. They started reading like crazy. Oh, they're like, oh my God. They love the put downs and stuff. And that's how, again, this is not highbrow literature, but before I get them reading highbrow literature, I got to get them interested. I'm trying to figure out What's my little sales entry point? How do I get them interested and build their trust to say, hey, I'm listening to you. I'm listening to your interests. And I've, I always tell people, if you don't like something, put it down. We'll, we'll get you something else to read. 
No, I think that's so fascinating because, I mean, I, I think of myself, we do, we get, for some reason, we feel a bond or a commitment to a book. It's like, well, I've started, so I have to finish, right? It's like, yeah. you know, a bit like with dinner, it's like, well, if you, you've you got to finish your plate, you know, um, why is that? Why why have we always sort of felt this need to, you're committed. As soon as you turn the, open the title, you know, or the, the, the cover, you, that's you, you've got to go to the end. It's, it's a weird psychology, isn't it, Pete? There's a great book by uh, Bill Bryson, who's a, fun, is a wonderful author. Uh, he has a great book called A Walk in the Woods. And my favorite, it's about, uh, he lives in New Hampshire, and one day he re- he realizes the Appalachian Trail goes through his backyard. The Appalachian Trail is a trail that goes the entire length of uh, the United States from, from north to south, from like, I think it's from Maine to Georgia. And so he decides, I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And uh, he decides he's going to do it with a buddy he he, tra- he backpacked Europe with like 30 years earlier. Uh, he was like this, he was like a hip, they were both hippies 30 years earlier. Well, his buddy shows up to do it with him. And his buddy is exactly the same from 30 years earlier. He's still a hippie. He's out of, out of shape, whatever. And so they... They try and do the uh, the Appalachian Trail, and the thing I like—I I, I guess I'm spoiling the book here for people—but uh, my favorite part of the book is that they quit. <laughs> They're like, screw this, and I'm like, that's actually a mature decision. Uh, it's kind of in politics. I—it I, drives me nuts when I hear people accuse a candidate. They're like, oh, well, that person flip flopped their position, and I always tell people, but that's what mature people do. When you get more information you decide, oh, I've been following the wrong path. I need to do this now. Stubborn imbeciles keep stay the same course. I mean, if you look at the, in history, this has been the problem for a lot of civilizations. They were, they, they were never flexible. Um, you know, this is something I've been saying in America lately. I'm like, well, America's gonna, we're gonna become the second fiddle here pretty soon because we're not as flexible as we used to. You know, we used to, Uh, It's kind of America is a lot like the English language. The reason English language has become such a predominant language around the world is it accepts everything. You know, uh, like if you look at French and Spanish, they have the French Academy and the Spanish Academy, and they're very concerned that their languages are being destroyed because English is kind of like a virus taking over because English is very adaptable. Uh, There's tons of I. I, I say this in one of my speeches. I'm like, we need to embrace immigration, not fear. And immigration is what made America a fantastic uh, country. And if you thank goodness for our immigrants, you know, if we didn't have immigrants from India, we'd all have really dirty hair because the word shampoo is a Hindi word. Uh, we wouldn't. We thank goodness for Arabic. Arabic gave us the term alcohol. We'd be in total desperation if we didn't have Arabic. Uh, Slavic languages like Russian and Polish gave us important words like uh, vodka and stroganoff. Uh, uh, you know when um, um, you know when the Vikings uh, invaded. Uh, I always call him Chuck Norris and his friends. The Vikings invaded back in the ninth century. Not only did they. They uh, take over England politically. They also uh, linguistically change the English language. Uh, they they introduce words like uh, um, what were words like uh, cake, ugly. Uh, these are words. These are Viking words. Uh, when when the French came over with William the Conqueror in 1066, not only did they dominate 
the United Kingdom politically for a couple of hundred years, linguistically, they changed the English language. So, for example, uh, uh, we wouldn't be able to go to court if it wasn't for the French, because almost every single court term is a French word. Uh, we wouldn't have anything to read because words like poetry and history and story, those are all French words. Um, we wouldn't have to pay taxes if it wasn't for the French, because the word tax is actually a French word. So, I, uh, you know, uh, I just think I, I think people need to. I, I tell this to my students all the time. Your mind is like a parachute. It works a lot better when it's open. And this is what gets me excited about teaching is you and I don't have to agree. But what we do have to learn how to do is to listen to one another. And we can disagree respectfully. That's fine. But there's plenty of times where I've been stubborn and I listen to my wife's argument. And one of the things she likes about me is if she thinks of something that's better than the way I'm doing it, I actually do it her way. Uh, and it, you know, it happens more often than I'd like to admit. But I'm like, huh. I mean, right now I'm sick. The reason I'm sick was I, I got a shot yesterday and my wife said, you shouldn't get that shot because it's going to make you sick. I'm like, I don't get sick. Well, I got sick. And you know, she she's always right. I'm always wrong. She's beautiful. I am not an attractive uh, human being. So uh, I've, I've learned that's how, that's what makes our marriage work is when I figured out uh, she gets her way and she's always right. <laughs> what's, what, I suppose, what's the best way of putting this? What sort of rules or ethos do you have with a book? Do you, do you commit to a book in terms of, you know, respecting it, honoring it, following, you know, uh, you know, sort of really trying to understand or trying to get into the vibe of the book? You know, is there anything you would take on whenever you are picking up a book for, for obviously to go through it the first time? It depends on the book, Pete. That's a great question. Uh, sometimes I'll read the last page of a book to see if I like the ending because <laughs> I don't want to read something depressing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to invest a whole bunch of time. Uh, I cheat all the time and I'll, I'll skip over boring chapters. Like I love Tom Clancy writes all kinds of cool uh espionage thrillers but gosh he'll go on for like three pages describing a periscope in a submarine i'm like gosh get me out of here and then he writes these great action scenes but i'm not going to sit there and suffer that long for that so I, I i jump around um and to me like i read a book recently it was a horrible book i, I didn't like any of the book but it, there was the first two pages of the book were fantastic and I'm not, I'm not angry I did the whole book because I'm like, well, the rest of the book stunk, but it was worth reading because I got a great story out of the first, because the first two pages were about, you'd like this because it's about a, a marketing executive and he was trying to figure out the next, the next big thing to, to market. And he was in Chile watching these uh, fishermen fish and he noticed that uh, they got their catch and then there was these other fish in their nets and they would always eat those fish uh, and then he ate the fish with them. And he's like, wait a sec, this fish tastes better than the fish that you're actually supposed to catch. And he's like, what's it called? They're like, oh, it's called the toothfish. It's like the toothfish. He's like, are there a lot of toothfish out there? They're like, oh yeah, tons of toothfish. We got tons of toothfish. So nobody wants a toothfish. And so he's like, give me a shot at it. And he renamed it the Chilean sea bass. And it's like the, the number one fish sold in America now. It's the exact same fish, but he gave it a different uh, title. It's, uh, that's American marketing uh, at work. And I was like, that's a fascinating story. I loved it for, I mean, I was reading a story yesterday. I, 
I, I, every day I realize how stupid I am, Pete. I, I have so much more to learn. I always thought that Sally Ride was the first woman in outer space. She's an American. I think she went to outer space in 1981. But yesterday, and I, I, I'm, I can't remember the name of the woman, but I found out in 1963, the Russians sent a woman to outer space, almost 20 years before the Americans. She's still alive. She's actually in the, the Russian... Um, parliament right now. I was like, how did I not know this? And I was like, but then I thought about it because I used to teach history and I always tell people, I'm like, well, history books are usually written by the winners. Every event in history has multiple points of view. And I don't care where you are in the world. Most histories are taught from a, a nationalistic perspective, you know, so in Ireland, actually you should do this. I, I encourage you to do this, Pete. You'll love this. Go to the, go to a, a store and buy a world map with Ireland on it because in Ireland, guess what's going to be in the middle of the map, Ireland. But if you buy that same map in the United States, United States is in the middle of the map. If you go to Australia, the map is turned upside down and Australia is in the center of the map. When I lived in Spain, it cracked me up. Spain was in the center of the map. And I'm like, wow, we really look at things from our own perspective. And uh, I've always thought that's a mistake. We can learn so much from other people if we just uh, put our egos aside. No, it's, it's, it's a fascinating way. As you say, it's that it's the beach ball effect, I think they call it, isn't it? You know, where it's... You say it from your side, I see red, green, blue, and you see brown, white, and yellow or whatever. You know, it's 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 the same ball, but just in different perspectives. Tell me this, what what's well, does a, a cover and a title matter to you? Absolutely. I mean, uh, 40% of book sales in America are based on cover art. Don't tell me Pamela Anderson sold all those books because people were interested in her opinion. They looked at the cover. Uh, it's actually a comprehension activity I'll do with my students is Every day I'll read a book to the kids um, and I won't show them the cover and I won't tell them the title. And after I read the story, I'm like, all right, kids, draw me a cover and give me a title. And uh, it's a fun comprehension activity. But I'm constantly uh, there's some books that are great books that I'm like, man, what a horrible cover. Why did it have such a stupid cover? And then there's lots of books, plenty of books where the cover is great and then the book's not that good. Uh, you know, uh, but I, I told I, and I, these are things I tell the kids to look at, you know, uh, I'll look at the cover, an activity I'll have the kids do is, okay, you're a marketer, you got to sell your book. So one of the ways, one of the best ways to sell your book is with testimonials. Cause I once read a book and, uh, it was called, uh, <laughs> it was called fear by L Ron Hubbard. This is the guy that created Scientology, but before he created his own religion, he was actually a science fiction writer, wrote some really cool books. And the only reason I read Fear was two reasons. First of all, it was a short book. I like short books. And second of all, above the title was a testimonial that said, this is the scariest book I've ever read, Stephen King. Well, I'm going to read that book now because Stephen King endorsed it. And I read the book and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is a messed up book. This is crazy. Um, but that was fascinating. And so when I'm doing that with kids also, I, I'm always I, mean, I, I like to tell them something about the book. It's kind of like going to a movie. It's cool to go to the movie. It's even better when you learn some things about the characters or uh, how the movie was made. Uh, you know, uh, I was just because I'm a movie fan and I was just uh, showing The Godfather to a friend and I pointed out to him like, oh, you see the the woman that Michael marries in Italy. You know, she was born in 1955. And he's like, well, what, why is that a big deal? I'm like, well, they filmed in 1971. And he's like. What's that mean? I'm like, well, do the math. She was 17 when they filmed that naked scene of her. I'm like, 
pretty interesting. And he's like, oh, and it made him, now he cherishes that scene. And for the rest of his life, he'll tell other people what I told him. Uh, I love to, to find out, uh, and I always love to find out things about authors. Uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite authors is Roald Dahl. And so I love to, to talk to the kids. Oh, Roald Dahl, you know, he was always looking for ways to, to get kids interested in reading and, and he'd make his character. I mean, Kids want to hear about these things. Uh, one of my favorite books as a kid was called Where the Wild Things Are by Marie Sendak, a, a picture book. And uh, I, I always share with the students, I'm like, you know, when, when Marie Sendak was a little boy, his aunts and uncles had emigrated to the United States from Eastern Europe. And they used to come to his house every weekend and they drank lots of beer and they made lots of noise and they totally trashed his house. And so when he was drawing the monsters and where the wild things are, those are his aunts and uncles. And the kid's like, wow. And so I'm also trying to inspire them to be writers, you know, because I I tell people, you know, there's I've never met a write, a very successful writer that's not also an avid reader. You know, uh, you can't be a, a I, I would be very shocked to ever meet an author that's a successful author that was also not an avid reader. Is there a, I was going to say, I think you've answered the question, but is there a direct correlation between consumption and creation? Definitely, I would say that. And it's actually, it's an interesting process, Pete. People don't realize you actually write before you read as a, as a little kid. Uh, I, I notice it all the time. The kids in writing will be like scratches and then it ter turns into like hieroglyphics, pictures and everything. And then you start coming up with uh, symbols, letters, and then the letters, you start connecting them with sounds. And then, uh, and it's interesting that, uh, that you'll see kids, they usually, their, their reading is preceded by their writing. Hmm. I never thought about that. Yeah, it does. It does make sense. You know, it's a, is it because it's an extra step or is it because it's a, it's another method of communication? I think it's just uh, kids are mimicking us all the time. So I always tell people, no matter what you do, you're always a teacher and a role model. Like if you're always sitting there uh, making your sausages and talking on the phone, when you watch, you should watch your little kids play because you'll see the little kids playing and they'll act like they're making sausages and talking on a phone. It's the, the kids, uh, you know, my, my pastor says it this way. He's like, parents, you have the greatest home field advantage in the history of the planet. You could be the worst parent ever. And your kid doesn't know it to them, your mom or dad, they're watching you all the time. And this is very important. I mean, it, it, it terrifies me that uh, there's other human beings that are paying attention to, to me and mimicking me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's it, as you say, monkey see monkey do really it's as well. It's, it's, it's what they, they follow up on. Mm -hmm. Tell me what's what is your passion amongst all of this? Well, you know, where, what's I mean, you're you're fire in the belly. What what is it? Where does it lie amongst what you do now? I'm trying to, you know, uh, Clifton Fadman said there the world has no shortage of smarter people. What we need are better people, and so that's one of my missions is really to create better people. Uh, uh, Dearmid, who runs Cyber Smarties out of Limerick, uh, Cyber Smarties is incredible. I met him a couple of years ago. So Cyber Smarties is basically a social media platform for children ages seven to 12. In order to be a member of Cyber Smarties, uh, you're identified by the police department and by your school, and it's only kids are allowed. Only kids are allowed on the platform, no adults. And let's say you decided to type a message to me, Pete, that said, uh, Danny, I think you're ugly. It won't let you send the message. Instead, a pop-up video comes up and says, hey, there's better ways to communicate with people like this. And after about four or five days, we find the kids stop even attempting to uh, write nasty things to one another. It's basically just it's it's getting rid of cyber cyberbullying uh, with all the students. It, it's got. 
I, I think it's 0.0016% uh, negative of uh, comments on there. Uh, they basically eliminated cyberbullying in all the schools that they're in in um, in Ireland. Uh, the program's also now in the UAE and in India. And uh, uh, Dearman and I hooked up because both of us believe in positive habit formation. And that's what I'm trying to do with my reading all the time is just to get those minutes in every single day. It's kind of like walking. You don't see the effect immediately, but if you walk you know, a half an hour a day after the course of a year, you're going to see long-term benefits to your health. The same thing with reading. If I can get kids, what I'm always stressing to parents is there's been research looking at uh, successful students, trying to look at common characteristics. And they found one, researchers discovered one, which shocked them. It was the number of minutes spent reading outside of school. So they looked at the low kids, the kids in the middle and the kids at the top. And they found that kids in the 20th percentile at the bottom of their class average less than a minute a day reading at home. That didn't surprise anybody. That's why the kids are probably at the bottom of their class. But this did surprise the researchers. The kids in the middle of the class, the 70th percentile, the C students, the average students, how much time do they spend reading outside of school every day? The average is 9.6 minutes. And when I'm doing a live training with parents, this is usually when the first parent raises their hand and says, wait a sec, are you telling me if I can get my kid to read 10 minutes a day at home, I can take them from the bottom to the middle of the class? So I'm like, that's exactly what I'm telling you. But this blows everybody out of the water. When we look at the 90th percentile, the kids near the top of the class, do they spend three hours a day reading outside of school? No. Is it one hour a day? No. The average was just over 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day. That is our goal. And my program is designed. It takes just a little bit over two months, uh, 67 days. People ask why 67 days? Well, a lot of people will tell you it takes 21 days to change a habit. And to those people, I say, show me the research on that. It's a completely fabricated number. Uh, I actually know exactly where the number comes from. It comes from a wonderful book written in 1960 by Dr. Maxwell Maltz called Psycho-Cybernetics. Dr. Maltz was a plastic surgeon. And in the preface of the book, he said he noticed it took most of his patients about 21 days to get used to their new face. Well, then a lot of self-help gurus, personal development people, by the way, a lot of people that I really respect started saying, oh, it takes 21 days to change a habit. Completely fabricated number. Well, researchers at the University of London in 2009 did a habit formation study, and they found it took anywhere from 18 to 254 days to change a habit, and the average was 66 days. I don't like the number 66, so I threw in a bonus day, 67 days. And it depends on the type of habit you're trying to change. So for example, if you're trying to drink a glass of water before breakfast every morning, that might take 18 days to turn that into a habit. But if you're trying to quit smoking, that's going to take 254 days. And here's why this is important to me, Pete. Let's say you go on a diet to get healthy and you follow the diet religiously for 21 days. But on day 22, you fall off the wagon. You revert to your old habits. Well, you blame yourself. That's wrong. Research shows it takes, on average, at least three times longer than that to form a habit. I think it's very irresponsible for people to claim it takes 21 days to change a habit when it's not based on any kind of research. And so in our program, we find it just takes a little bit over two months to get the kid. I mean, you know, in, in two months, usually the kids boost their reading ability by two to three grade levels. And that's all fine and good. I'm not as interested in that. What's important to me, what's near and dear to my heart is that kids now love reading. They get excited about reading. They seek doing it. I had this one uh, 10-year-old boy, Michael, 
And Michael was at the bottom of his class. He was driving his mother crazy. So she enrolled Michael in our program. And a month later, Michael's teacher called uh, Michael's mother and said, what kind of medication did you put Michael on? And the mother's like, I didn't put him on medication. She's like, what are you doing? He's gone from my worst student to my top student. Well, that made me look great, but that's not what made me love Michael. The two things that made me love Michael is, first of all, Pete, he got so excited about reading. He started a book club with his buddies. And now it cracks me up. This teacher is winning like every school district award because her kids are the best readers in the district. Has nothing to do with anything she did. The kids are reading the books. But what really made me love Michael is that Michael's mother doesn't speak a word of English. My, my program is basically, Pete, every day I send about a five-minute video to parents, giving them an idea on how to get their kids excited about reading. And the parents then do that idea with their kids. Michael's mother didn't understand English. She couldn't do it. So Michael watched the videos on his own. So I guess I'm interesting enough to a 10-year-old that uh, he thought it was funny. And he excited. And that that touched my heart so much. We actually translated the entire program into Spanish because it was a Spanish speaking mother. Uh, so now the program is in English and Spanish. We have, uh, I think we're going to probably uh, pretty soon translate it into Arabic because we've have, have a lot of uh, countries like in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, the UAE that are looking at it as well as Pakistan. Um, but people always ask me, Danny, you know, all the stuff you're talking about, this is pretty simple. I can do it on my own. Why don't I just do it on my own? And this is my response. Please do. I encourage you to do it. But will you? You know, most people don't do things. They, they say, most people talk and then they don't do anything. In my program, it just, is, just like Dear Mid Cyber Smarties program, we keep you accountable. We can find out exactly if you're doing it every day. We'll, and by doing it daily, we're turning it into a habit. You know, just like you with this podcast, Pete, you know, you've done over 400 podcasts. I guarantee you, you're so much better now than you were after episode one because you've gotten in the reps. It takes time. It takes time. But now I know you're so much more comfortable. I mean, look, look at you. You're very different than a lot of the interviewers I deal with. You actually listen to my answers. A lot of people have a whole list of questions and they ask questions, but they're not actually listening to the answers. I much prefer what you're doing, which is, okay, let's go. Let, let me let Danny go off on this tangent and I'm going to listen to his answer and then I'll ask the next question based on the tangent he took me. That's really good. That's actually a skill set. I hope you realize that's a really, that's a, that's a valuable skill set. When I'm training executives in communication skills, I'm like, you know, those ears are just as important as that mouth. You should be paying attention to what people are saying and uh, you'll, you'll be able to solve a lot of your so-called crises if you actually just pay attention and listen to people. So again, you always ask short questions, Pete, and I ask, I give you very long answers, but that's, that's what gets me excited. I mean, my, my goal and Dearman and I have the same goal is that uh, I want at least a couple of billion kids to go through my program. And I want one of those kids to win the Nobel peace prize someday. And I, I aim high. I have major, major aspirations for kids. I want people you've seen, especially in the last I know I'd say in the last five years, uh, it's just been ridiculous how negative people have become, uh, how obnoxious they have. They've lost their manners. And I want to uh, rebuild a society where it's all right to disagree with one another without being disagreeable to one another. Mm. That's a very, yeah, it's a very valid point because a lot of that comes down to respect, right? You know, respect and awareness of one another, awareness of, 
each other's traditions, habits, whatever. And there's no reason why we can't be like a book. You know, you can read the book. It doesn't mean you have to believe it or accept it all, but at least you're a little bit wiser, right? Exactly. You know, I, I was blessed uh, before the pandemic. I'm a, a visiting distinguished professor at the American University in Cairo. And when I was last there, I, uh, I spoke to a whole bunch of Muslim schools and I was very intimidated. I didn't know what to talk about. And uh, I had this one training and it was two o'clock in the afternoon, Pete, and 400 parents showed up at two in the afternoon to hear me speak. And it was like the Muslim Brotherhood. All the guys had the long beards and all the women were in burqas. And we were talking like you and I are talking just just now. And I, I thought to myself, shame on me. I had all these preconceptions and I realized people are really people. And then I found out they were my dream audience because I started my presentation. I said, uh, I was reading this book the other day. Have any of you ever read the Quran? And they all laughed. I'm like, oh, well, then, you know, the story in the Quran, when the Archangel Gabriel appears to Muhammad in the cave, what's his first instruction of Muhammad? Because the first pillar of Islam is to read. And so I pointed out to the parents. So not only should we get your kids reading, it's actually written in your most sacred text that it's your duty to get your kid reading. And everybody started nodding. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my dream audience. Where, why have I not been speaking to Muslim schools? And I, now I've been doing a lot with Pakistan and uh, I love it. And it, I'm always just, that's, you said it there. Like, don't apply our own traditions and cultures. Like let's, let's uh, pay attention to what other people are doing. When I was in India and I love India, I was speaking at a, an all girls school, 5,000 girls in Chennai in South, Southeast India. And these two beautiful seniors come up to me afterwards. One wants to be a doctor. One wants to be a lawyer. And I'm like, that's great. Are you going to go to university here in India? Or maybe you'll go to uh, the United Kingdom or the United States. And like, Oh, we're girls. We can't leave India. I'm like, get back in that auditorium. I got them all back in there. And I said, now is your moment, ladies, you know, within the next five years, India is going to become the largest country on the planet in terms of population. I'm like, you're a very young democracy. You're just over 70 years old, yet you've already elected a woman prime minister. America still has not elected a woman president. I'm like, right now, there are twice as many women in India as there are people in the United States. I said, right now, there are actually more women in India with a graduate degree than there are people in the United States. I'm like, I, you just made it one of my missions, like the next great government leader, the next business leader, the next really good parent came out of this audience. I, I always have told my students, sometimes you need somebody else to believe in you before you believe in yourself. They only give me the best and the brightest. I believe in all of you. I, I, I think so much is mindset and getting people to, uh, I mean, look at, I hear so many people right now talking that the pandemic's the worst thing ever to happen in the world. I'm like, Actually, if you look at it from a different point of view, I think it might be the greatest thing ever to happen in the world. I mean, because of the pandemic, now I understand how to use a Zoom meeting with you, Pete. I had no idea beforehand. And now I'm like, wait. And, and it was cool because I'm like, wait a sec. I'm getting to talk to Pete in Ireland right now. And no, it's, it's like a natural conversation. I used to have to get on a plane to fly to Dublin to go visit Pete. You know, after you, I'm going to be speaking on national television in Nigeria. I, there's no way I can do Ireland and Nigeria mm. back to back in the same day physically. But now via this thing called the Internet, I mean, I get excited. Uh, you know, I'm in Bangladesh and I'm like, right now, there's some there's some kid 
that maybe didn't even eat breakfast, that's on a dirt floor. But if that kid has a, a laptop and an internet connection, that kid has the exact same access as the head of Google. The world just got a whole lot smaller. And I'm very optimistic. I'm like, you know, you don't have to be born in New York City anymore to change the world. You can be anywhere on the planet. And this thing we call the internet and technology, while there's all kinds of negative possibilities for it, there's also all kinds of positive possibilities for it. One of the reasons I, I'm working with Dermot is uh, he had written an anti-bullying book, which I could tell, you can tell in a person's voice when it's something that they experience themselves. And it just made me love Dermot. I'm like, you know, this is, this is a man that's been through a lot and he's, he's doing this for the right things. I've worked with plenty of people that are money hungry people and that's great. Money's money's great, but it shouldn't be uh, to me who, who cares? You can make all the money in the world. If you're not making a difference, not making a positive impact, why are you doing it? And uh, he and I see social media that uh, while social media came on the, it came on the scene so quickly and people immediately used it for all of its negative, most negative connotations. But there are so many possibilities if you train people, especially at an early age, the positive possibilities of social media, you can change the world. And that's what we're doing is we're going to create positive reading habits with young. I mean, adults, a lot of us are already caught up in our habits uh, with kids. We can actually develop those habits. It's a whole lot easier to create a good habit than to break a bad habit. And so that's where I'm, I'm passionate about is what can we do to train kids positive habits at a very young age so that we can affect positively affect this next generation uh, to make positive changes in the world and, and make the world a better place, a safer place. I mean, I think that's so beautiful because I mean, the ripples that can be set off by that, I mean, will be for, for generations. I mean, this is more than, you know, this guy, Danny told you know, sort of got me to read, you know, it's like, well, that, like any sort of uh, spike in, in energy and enthusiasm actually travels a hell of a lot further. And, you know, right back to what you said at the very start is, is getting people to want to read, you know, that's, that's huge in itself. Tell me this. I mean, if you were to try and sort of summarize the sort of reading commandments or reading habits to, into, you know, what, what, what are quality habits to have when reading? Yeah. So, I, I mean, a couple of them, I mean, I, I always tell people, it doesn't matter what you read. What matters is how much you're reading. Um, reading should always be fun. If you're not having fun doing it, put it down because it's never going to stay as a habit if it's not fun. Don't get me wrong. I think that negative can have negative can be can work in the short term, but it never works in the long term. In order to get somebody to do something long term, you have to make them love it. Uh, and that's where I've always seen the best teachers are very good at making you passionate about something. And then I always tell people you are what you read. So read good stuff. I mean, uh, uh, I, I stopped watching the news, you know, cause it's the same thing every, every single night, uh, the world is coming to an end and this leader is doing a bad job. I it's very negative and it doesn't serve me. Um, and I have a rule with people is when they start being negative, I'm like, you know, are you listening to yourself? Is this, is this who you want to portray yourself as? Cause I would love, I would love to create a kindness pandemic on this planet. I think people, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, 
I have optimism. I honestly believe that what we need is an asteroid to be heading towards Earth to destroy Earth because I am completely confident if an asteroid was headed towards Earth to destroy this planet, that China and Ireland and Russia and England and India, all of these countries would get together and figure out how to solve the problem. And for at least a couple of weeks, maybe they'd get along and realize we're not all as different as, you know, and I think it's great that we're different. You and I had this conversation earlier. Thank goodness we're all different. I mean, it bothers me that there's more Starbucks in Beijing than there are in New York City. I don't want China to start to look like the United States. You know, I think uh, China is great the way it is. Um, I think people should should appreciate their own cultures and then really expand their their view. And this is why I love traveling. And if you can't travel, people are like, well, I don't have the means to travel. I'm like, yeah, you do. Well, you, it's called a public library card. You can travel the entire history of the planet just by uh, reading really good books. And so uh, that's really what I'm always trying to do is, uh, and I love, I love conversations like this, Pete. I, I, I love being around people where I'm like, huh, I'm learning something. This is fascinating. Um, you know, I want to talk about things in a positive way, though. I, 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 I'm bothered for my own children that they're, they're in a really negative world. And I, I travel all the time and I, I tell people, I'm like, the world's not as grim as you think it is. I mean, when you actually meet people and that the example I gave you in Egypt, when I was in Cairo at the Muslim school, you know, I'm Christian. And, uh, just this, just this weekend, my pastor gave, made a comment that I thought was very negative toward Muslims. And I'm like, well, why do you have to put down Islam in order to boost up Christianity? I mean, I, I mean, why can't you both get along and appreciate, well, you're different. You have your own beliefs. Um, you know, I've had, I had, when I was in Egypt, I had Muslims that, that treated me much more Christ-like than Christians have ever treated me. And that's kind of the person I want to be, Pete, is I want to be a person where uh, other people look at me and they're like, huh. I wonder what his secret sauce is. I wonder how I can be more like that. I'd like to set a positive example. And uh, that's, what, that's what gets me going is uh, you were talking about it. I'm like, man, we have a chance to create a generation of kids that they don't play by these same rules. They don't allow the negative. And it's just, it's not just an, I, I see it in a lot of things. Uh, it's all of us, all of us contribute to it. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. And I, I always point out to people when they show the medal count, I'm like, well, that's the spirit of the Olympics. How many medals did you win? I, that's not the spirit at all. To me, the best moments in the Olympics are when you get, uh, I remember um, it was, I think it was the last uh, winter Olympics. So I think it was a, uh, it was either a Canadian skier or a Russian skier broke their ski and the other one gave them their extra ski so they could finish. I'm like, that's what the Olympics are about. Or there was that Olympics in Athens when the, the guy was running the marathon and the maniac attacked a, a runner and the, and the guy pushed him aside or whatever. And the, by doing it, he lost the race, but then it was to their credit, the Olympic committee gave him the highest honor for sportsmanship and I'm like, that's what it's all about. We, we focus too much on the guy celebrating his goal and not the guy that passed him the ball. And the guy, I mean, there, there's no, it's something I, I talk to kids about. I'm like, you know, there's nobody in the history of the planet that did it on their own. They can say they did it on their own, but they did. You know, somebody believed in them. Somebody helped them out. And then it's our job realizing that somebody helped us out along the way that it's our job then to pass that along to somebody else and to mentor another person. So 
that's that's kind of what I'm that's not kind of what about I'm about. That's what I'm all about is uh, how can we make this world a better place and uh, treat one another with a lot more respect. I like that word you gave respect. That's a that's a great word. Mm. Of interest. I mean, do, do you do you think books are are written in a in a, in a pleasure, a pain based way? I mean, just from what you've said there, and I think there's there's a hell of a lot of mileage in that. You know, it's like let's 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 focus on the the positive. I mean, I, I potentially you know I take the likes of the Bible. I don't know the Quran, but you know, it's it's more fact based, is it not? There's, there's less stories and rumors and hearsay. It, it's well, it's it's designed, I suppose, to be more fact based. So I'm just wondering, are people are books generally written in a more positive positive way than people would maybe naturally speak? Well, I mean, you have all kinds of different books, Pete. I mean, there's plenty of negative books out there. I mean, uh, here in America, after a president or even while they're president, they, all these books come out by people close to that person. Oh, this person's the the second coming of Christ. Oh, this person is the Antichrist. It's always the same thing. Um, and that's why I always tell people you have to guard yourself. Uh, one of my mentors, Charlie Tremendous Jones, said, you're the same today as you will be in five years except for two things, the people you meet and the books you read. So I always advise my kids, uh, make sure you make wise choices, surround yourself with people that lift you up and make sure you fill your mind with things that also build you up. So I'm very, uh, you know, when I'm reading, I want to read. I, say, again, I'm not as, I, I read plenty of fiction, but fiction isn't uh, as, as fun to me. Actually, I shouldn't say that. Probably one of my favorite books of all time is fiction. Uh, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams was the first book where I had to put it down because I was laughing so much every single page, just to create to actually Harry Potter. I had that experience with Harry Potter, the very first Harry Potter book. I put it down several times and I looked at my wife I'm like, where does she get this stuff? She's so creative. This is just a brilliant book. Uh, and actually, when I was reading Harry Potter, um, have you read Harry Potter, Pete? Mm -hmm. I haven't read yeah. Good. I mean, there's plenty of people that haven't read Harry Potter. And I always tell those people, you're so lucky because you have the chance to read it for the first time. And I'll never have that chance again. And every page I was like, what's going to happen next? And it was about midway through the book of the first book, uh, the, uh, uh, the Philosopher's Stone. And um, Harry sees the mirror where he sees the reflection of his parents in the mirror. And, um, you know, um, Jeez, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my mind. Uh, uh, the head wizard. I can't think of the head wizard. Dumbledore. Dumbledore uh, tells Harry that, oh, the mirror only reflects the things that most are the most important to you. And as I was reading that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is literature. This is going to last 200 years. I mean, this this book does everything you're supposed to do in a book. I was just it was just such a wonderful reading experience. Uh, Douglas Adams got me hooked on all of his books. I just started laughing. I'm like, wow, I had no idea a book could get me laughing like that. Uh, I've read pl plenty of books that are sad, too. Uh, I've read books that have terrified me. Um, I read uh, Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi. Vincent Bugliosi is the attorney that prosecuted Charles Manson for the Manson family murders. And it was horrifying but I was I was just turning page after page. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how did he do this? This is fascinating. Um, and that's what. And I think that book was referred to me by somebody. And that's why I want to surround myself. If you're around people, you become exactly like the people you're around. If you're around people that are griping about the government all the time, well, guess what? You're going to gripe about the government all the time, you know, uh, 
I, I tell people I've read lots of books and I've never read a book about a pessimist that changed the world. You know, oh, this ain't going to work. Well, maybe I'll invent this. No, it's people that are, are trying to, I mean, when I read, uh, I, you know, I, I share with you earlier, I read the children's book on Elon Musk. Well, it inspired me to read uh, his biography by Ashley Vance. And there was a couple of things in that book that were fascinating to me about Elon Musk because he's, he's at a Mexican restaurant with his biographer and he's dating a new woman. And he's like, I'm thinking about allocating eight and a half hours a week to my new girlfriend. Is that, is that sufficient? <laughs> like who talks like that? He's, he's putting a time amount on his girlfriend. And then what I really liked in the book. So it's interesting because he was bullied as a kid. So there's an interesting, if we had cyber smarties, we would have been all right with him. Uh, but um, there's an interesting scene where he's at SpaceX and some of his engineers are annoyed because he's constantly asking them questions and the engineers are like, man, I already got this job. Does he think I'm not competent at my job? And then the engineers started comparing notes like, wait a second. His questions are getting more sophisticated. He's listening to our answers. He's teaching himself and he actually understands it better than us now. I'm like, wow, that's a fascinating. I'm like, wow. I mean, people can say what they want about the man. I mean, but it's, it's fascinating. You see that in a lot of these people, Steve Jobs, when I read his biography, it's not like a person I necessarily want to have a beer with, but he is, I'm thank, I'm thankful that the guy existed. I'm like, wow, this guy was really addicted. You know what? I think, I think Apple would be much better off if Steve jobs was alive. Cause I don't think Steve jobs was about the money at all. I mean, I think he was totally about, I want to create products that change the world. And, you know, you notice since he's passed on, there hasn't all that's all that Apple has done is created newer versions of things that, he already came out with, I mean, maybe we would have high politicians by this point. You never, you have no idea. I mean, he just thought in such grander terms. And I love reading about people like that. The book I'm writing right now, it's interesting. The last book I wrote was called Leadership Begins with Motivation. This was crazy, Pete. It was completely unintentional. After I read the book, I'm like, wait a sec. Most of the examples I gave in this book are about white male Americans. I'm like, I didn't even intend to do that. And so the book I'm writing right now, I'm very intentional about it. I'm like, I'm, I'm writing a book that has uh, uh, success stories of predominantly minorities and women and people around the world. And because uh, I think, you know, when I was in Egypt, if I want to inspire Egyptians, I need to tell them stories about little Egyptians that came out of nowhere and, and created a, a positive impact on society in Ireland. I mean, if I'm going to Ireland, I need to read up on my, my best Irish people and, and show kids examples of all these different Irish people, because it's just something that a lot of people, they're like, huh, I can never do this. Well, when you find out somebody else did, then you're like, oh, if they did it, maybe I can do it. Uh, and that's what, you know, so books, there's positive and negatives. I mean, it depends on what you want to do. I, I made the mistake of going to a book sale the other day and I wound up buying 70 books. It's like I was there for three hours. It was horrible. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an addiction. I, I, I can't get enough. And I read, I'm a very eclectic reader. And uh, I actually, my uh, book club is one of the top book clubs online. It's called lazyreaders.com. If you go to lazyreaders.com, it's a free subscription. Once a month uh, for the rest of your life, I update it with 10 new book recommendations, three or four adult level, three or four young adult level, and three or four children's level books, all under 250 pages. So you have something you can read when you're stuck waiting in a meeting or something like that. And, uh, I'm, and I like to read positive things. I, you know, I, 
I don't like being depressed. That's why I like American movies. American movies, I know there's always going to be a happy ending. Julia Roberts is not going to die. She, she'll survive somehow. French movies, they'll kill the main character. They never do that in American movies. So, but that's what, I, I mean, but you read for different reasons. I mean, if you're depressed, maybe you want to read depressing books. I, I And I, I there's plenty of well-written depressing. I mean, I think about Eric Siegel wrote Love Story in 1970. That's a nice short book, Love Story. It's actually a beautiful book. It's beautifully written. And, uh, you know, it's depressing, but it's a nice book. You know, sometimes you need to read. Um, when I was uh, Watership Down by Richard Adams, it's a wonderful book. I read that in middle school. I was forced to read it. And, you know, I loved it. I was like, wow, why does a, a boy like a book about bunny rabbits? Um, and I loved it. I just thought it was a, a really well-written book, you know, so you never know. So that's why sometimes with me, I often... The way I get through that with my students, is I'll read aloud books to them constantly and get them interested in books that way. Um, and I never read the endings because I want them to read it on their own. So I, the people always ask why my students were never tardy for class. And I'm like, well, because before recess, I'd say Harry took out his wand. He looked at Voldemort and we'll read the rest of this right after recess. Well, now all my students are going to show back up on time if they're interested in the story. So I got to get them interested. I'm sorry. I keep on giving very long answers to your very short questions, Pete. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. It's, you, 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 you suggested there saying what a book is supposed to do. What is a book supposed to do? I think a book should push you farther. You should think differently by the time you've read any book. Uh, you know, it should make you either laugh. It should make you think. It should make you cry. Um, that's what the best, uh, you know, one of my favorite authors for young adults is a guy, he passed away a couple of years ago by the name of Richard Peck, wrote a wonderful book called, uh, a long way from Chicago, which was a, uh, a Newbery honor book. And then it's sequel a year down yonder actually won the Newbery medal, which is the, the highest honor a young adult book can have. It's about, uh, these kids from Chicago during the 1930s that have to, spend their summers with their grandma in rural Illinois on her farm. And grandma's a character. And uh, I once had an editor tell me, he's like, Danny, you're a really funny writer. And if you really want to become a, a truly great writer, you got to make people laugh. You got to make people cry and you got to make people think. And to me, that's what the best literature does is it makes you, uh, I keep on giving Harry Potter as an example. It does all three of those things. Uh, and that's what I think any, any good book should challenge you. Uh, there's a book I read to my, my students called Mighty Jackie and boys love the book because it's about baseball and girls love the book because it's a true story of Jackie Mitchell, who was a 17 year old pitcher for the Chattanooga Lookouts in Tennessee. And back in the 1930s, people forget this major league baseball teams used to do these barnstorming tours around minor league stadiums just to get fans. And the New York Yankees came to play the Chattanooga Lookouts and on consecutive at bats, 17 year old pitcher Jackie Mitchell struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, the two greatest living American baseball players. Two months later, Major League Baseball banned women from professional baseball. And I love this book because I look at my little girls. I'm like, how about it, ladies? 77 cents. That's what the average American woman makes on the dollar of every American man. When is one of you going to run for president of the United States, head Microsoft, or become Major League Baseball's first female commissioner? I, that's what a book should do. It should push you to say, hey, you know what? I can make things better. So another long answer, but that's what a, a good book should do. <laughs> no, I, I totally love it. I mean, it's... I mean, I had a privilege of releasing my own book earlier this year, and it's it's 
I'd be interested to know your take on it in terms of, I find it rather bizarre, you know, it's almost releasing the book into the wild. It's, uh, I don't know if it's akin to a child, but it's sort of, you know, you, you grow it, you, you sort of, you produce it and then you let it go and, and um, it, it sort of continues to create ripples. I mean, how do you feel about having your stuff out there that somebody from, I don't know, China could be reading it right now yeah. or, you know, you could be six foot under and in a hundred years time, someone will pick it up and, and use it as reference material. I mean, and that's what should be inspiring you to write your next book too, mm. Pete. I mean, you're exactly right. I was just writing a story for my book right now. Um, and it was about two women. Uh, they were both choreographers. They're having coffee in a coffee shop in New York city. And the one woman, she had released her third play on Broadway and it was doing pretty well, but the critics just tore it apart. They tore it to pieces. And so she thought, you know what, I'm going to take this I'm going to, I'm going to close the show. And her, her name was Agnes and her friend, Martha said, no, you can't close that show because it's not for you or I to judge your work. It's not for anybody to judge your work. That work might mean something to somebody else, you know, and just so you know, the world has never had anybody like you. It will never have anybody like you again. And if you close this show, the world will lose it forever. And so the, the friend that was encouraging Agnes was Martha, who was Martha Graham, who became the mother of modern dance. She won the Kennedy Center Honors Presidential Medal of Freedom. And her friend was Agnes DeMille, who decided not to close the show. She became the first woman on Broadway to have three concurrent musical hits. And she decided, you know what, I'm going to keep the show on Broadway. I'm just going to change the name. And she changed the name of the show to Oklahoma which became one of the most successful shows ever on Broadway. And I, I, I wrote another story. This is a great story about this, this painter who's writing to his buddy. He's like, oh man, Giuseppe, my back is killing me. I have fumes inside my nose. I hurt everywhere. I've been doing this for four years. I'm miserable. You know, alas, I am not a painter. I am just a sculptor. And the letter was signed Michelangelo, and it was right after he had finished painting the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> so again, we have no idea, you have no idea, even this podcast, there could be somebody down on their luck listening right now. And they're like, you know what? Huh. I, I, I can, this has inspired me to, to, to keep going. I mean, I, I do that when I'm training teachers. And one of the first things I do is I have people thank a teacher. And there was a woman in the audience. And she said, I've been teaching for 35 years and nobody's ever thanked me. I'm like, that's sad. You know, I can't believe that, you know, we're only on this rock for a little time. We need to, uh, we need to show the people that we love how much we love them every day. Uh, don't, don't hold that in. That's tragedy. Mm -hmm. Tragedy is when uh, somebody passes and you never had the chance to tell them what you actually thought of them. And so I, I make a, an effort every day to do my gratitude I'll write people I've never met. And I'm like, just so you know, this TV show used to always make me laugh when I was down. Maybe that person would love it. I don't even know if they ever see them, but uh, it, it would be nice. Uh, you're right, Pete. There could be somebody in China reading your book right now that's like, huh. And then that person, you know, is Jack Ma. He creates Alibaba. It's not, it, I mean, you never know. You never know. Dude. How, how do you sort of maintain reality? I suppose, because I mean, imagine when you, when you read so much and so profusely, like, 
mean, do you ever almost get to the stage of going, I don't know whether that was my thought, whether I read that thought, whether <laughs> somebody told it to me. I mean, uh, my memory wouldn't be a fraction of what yours is. And I just going, I don't know. I don't know. I read it somewhere. I think you know, yeah. I heard it or whatever. Do, do you get mixed up in your, your own thoughts and others you've possibly inherited? Oh, I totally get mixed up. I know that I've never come up with a brilliant original thought that it had to have been inspired by somebody else. And I, I joke around with people like that. I'm like, you know, uh, as a, as a professor, I always have to cite research and I always say Harvard did the study, by the way, just so you know, I always say Harvard did the study because it sounds much more legitimate that way. If I say Harvard did it, I can never remember who, who actually does the studies. The same thing with, uh, quotes it's very difficult often for me to remember a quote uh but i mean i remember stories maybe that's the irish in me you know uh you know what's the old joke the only thing an, Ir an irishman can remember is a grudge uh, i can actually remember a, a story usually uh, some people collect cars uh other people uh collect uh, shot glasses i collect stories and when people tell a joke or a story that i, I i'm like ooh, i'm gonna take that i love it and um you know, and so the, the last book I wrote, The Leadership Begins with Motivation, is a collection of uh, when I was teaching my middle school students, the way I was able to always get the kids to class on time was I always read Paul Harvey's uh, Rest of the Story stories to them, which are like five minute read alouds about. And the kids are always trying to figure out who's he talking about or what company is he talking about? Uh, and kids love those types of stories. And so that's what the purpose of my book was, was to create an updated version of that for a more modern audience. So I have like one story in the book is about this guy named Gary Gilmore, who in 1977 was going to be the first person uh, executed at the federal level in like 10 years by firing squad. He had killed a, a gas station attendant. And before the firing squad shot him, they asked him if, if he had any final words. And nobody knows the impact that those three words would have on society, because 10 years later, Dan Whedon, who was the co-founder of the Whedon and Kennedy advertising agency was making a pitch to a struggling fashion company on their new uh their new fashion campaign and he kind of gave a morbid pitch where he remembered those three words and he he said oh let's use this and uh nobody including the ceo nobody liked the idea and he said trust me on this one use this as your new campaign and so the ceo phil knight he decided, okay, I'll take a chance on this. His, his struggling company was called Nike. And uh, the, the three-word slogan they decided to use for their ad campaign was just do it. <laughs> and that's the kind of story kids are like, they're trying to figure out what's he talking about. But I, I think kids need to hear more updated versions. You know, if you're talking about Sears and Roebuck, like a kid doesn't even know what Sears and Roebuck is. They have didn't exist. You know, they'll know who Jeff Bezos is because Jeff Bezos is now current. Uh, you know, uh, like when I'm in Egypt, I'm going to talk about Salah, the, the great uh, football player, the soccer player they're going to be interested in. Um, you got to think you got to give them stories that uh, of of people and brands that they're familiar with. <laughs> Oh, totally. I think it's it's so right. It's, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful way of conveying a story and um... You know, it's interesting because earlier as well, you know, I was thinking and someone said to me, I don't know who, but, <clears throat> you know, when I was sort of debating whether to write a book and I don't, I still don't quite know why I wrote the book. I just did. Um, but people saying it's like, there's, listen, there's, there's no new ideas, you know, but what is, what is different is, is your unique view 
upon it. Absolutely. And that's that's enough of a reason to do it. You know, I'm sure somebody's written about, I don't know, podcasting before or whatever, right? But what's different is your view. All the different turns and twists and lessons that you've learned is completely unique. And that is enough to make you write a book that potentially is a busy category per se, but um, and using it as a, as a learning technique as well. So Yeah, that's a great point, Pete. I've always told people, I was talking to a speaker and he's like, well, why would I help you? You're my competition. And I just laughed at him. I said, well, I have no competition. I only have potential collaborators. You and I could speak on exactly the same thing, but it's exactly to your point, Pete. We do it in a different way. Hmm. You know, hmm. uh, I mean, just because you've heard one song doesn't mean you only listen to that one song. You can, yeah. you can even look at this. I, I've even heard the same song sung by different cover bands, and it's fascinating. They're different interpretation of the same song. You know, everybody has their own take on things. And so I, I completely agree with you. I think it's your unique uh, position that uh, that makes that. I mean, you can, there are no unique stories out there. They're just uh, different re things rehashed. <laughs> mm. No, it's so true. It is so true. I think that's very wise. Well, what you're saying, you know, about Elon Musk, it's, it's true. I mean, why, why not? I mean, that's kind of in a way how this podcast came about, you know, it's thinking grow rich. It talks about, you know, Napoleon Hill and, and sort of having interviewed 504 people to, to create the book, you know, it's like, well, I'm sure if I interview 504 people, I'm going to be a little bit smarter, right. You know, I'm going to learn something, you know, and each person you, you, you sort of learn something and, and do something different. So uh, it's it's fascinating. Um, I, I kind of have some rapid fire questions. I would I'm sort of quite, uh, you know, I sort of I think it might be quite telling, really, in some ways. But uh, do you prefer to consume or create? Uh, I prefer I prefer to create. Okay, that's interesting. Didn't expect that. Paperback or hardback? Paperback. <laughs> Can I ask why? Uh I, it, it's a horrible habit. Pete. I, I, I write in all my books. I'm writing notes all the time because I'm what I do is after I read a book, here's a little tip for everybody. When, after I read a book, I've dog-eared pages and written notes in the margins or whatever. And I take my iPhone and I take pictures of those pages. And then I, I file that in a category. So I'm speaking around the world. So if I, if I find a great anecdote about responsibility, I can file that in the responsibility folder. So if somebody asks me to speak about responsibility, I have 20 of these different anecdotes that I can do. Uh, so that's why I'm doing it. And, uh, you know, I read so many books. I just, I write in them and then I donate them either to classroom teachers or to the local library for their book sale. Uh, and I, I feel a little less guilty writing in a paperback than in a hardcover. <laughs> Well, that's, that's actually one of the questions. Do you write in a book? Do you highlight a book? Do you not? You yeah. know, it's, uh -huh. You have no problems to make, make it your own and, and sort of be part of it. Yeah, my dad would have killed me because my dad does. Every book is sacred and you can't, you can't. He had three by five cards he'd write notes on. He would never write in the book, but I write in books all the time. It's horrible. <laughs> that's interesting. Twice you've defined it as horrible, but yet you still do it. So it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> Our passion still doesn't stop us. We might yeah. feel slightly guilty with it, but, uh, That's right. uh, you know, um, new or secondhand. Uh, it doesn't matter, but I'd go with secondhand because if I'm going to be writing in it, I don't want to destroy a nice new book. <laughs> Fiction, nonfiction. Nonfiction. Okay. Interesting. Big book, small book. <laughs> small book, short books. I like short books. I, I always tell people, you know, I've never finished watching a TV show where I thought, wow, I'm really 
I'm really glad I watched that TV show, but every time I finish a book, I feel like I've accomplished something. So that's why I like reading. Cause I'm like, Oh, I, it's like, it's like, Oh, I just, I just worked out for an hour. I worked out my brain for an hour. <laughs> no, that's cool. Would you rather um, read or be read to? Well, I, I prefer reading on my own, but uh, you if know, you we're doing it in a public setting, you uh, a book club, for example, are you happy to be the, the uh, outspoken reader or would you rather? Others. Absolutely. And I love, but I do love reading aloud to kids, especially. And I love actually even adults. I, I get excited because I, there's so many books I want to share with people and get them excited about those books also. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, you mentioned you're a bit of a fan of movies as well as a movie or book. Ah, uh, that's a tough one. Um, I'd have to say the book, uh, I I'm a person that always encourages students to watch the movie. And the reason I do that is because I want them to understand. I always hear them say this. They're like, wow, the movie was really good, but the book's a lot better because no matter what a movie does, it can never capture what you're imagining those characters to be thinking, how they look, uh, the settings and things like that. So I definitely have to go with the book. In that scenario, then do you go to the movie first or do you read the book first? You said, I don't, I don't care. I would prefer to watch the movie after I've read the book because then I'm going to be annoyed usually. But there's a lot of movies I've seen where I'm like, huh, I wonder how the book is. And then I read the book. So I'll give you an example. The movie, The Silence of the Lambs, I, I didn't even know what the movie was about. When I saw that movie and I was like, oh my gosh, this movie's fantastic. And so then I read the book and the book has a different ending and the book's ending is really good too. Um, so that was fascinating to me. And then I read Red Dragon and then I saw the movie for Red Dragon wasn't as good. Uh, but it was it, it's fascinating. So sometimes a book, I, I honestly think that the only movie versions that usually work are with kid books because they don't have to cover as much material. It's very difficult to take a novel and in less than two hours time, translate that novel and be totally true to the, the subject matter in just a couple of hours. But with a kid's book, you can do that usually. That's why I actually think the movie, the polar express, I think the movie's actually better than the book. I love the book, but I think the movie's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Graphically. It's very, very teasing, isn't it? It's, you know, it's spectacular. Chris, yeah. Chris Van Allsburg is a wonderful author. I mean, that's one of the nice things I, you know, when I get to speak, I get to speak at the conferences where I get to meet a lot of these people and I love it. Cause then I get to find out little stories from all of them. Like, okay. Let me hear this story. I, uh, I was speaking at a conference with uh, Norton Juster. He wrote the phantom toll booth, which was a, a it's been a bestseller forever. Uh, he's written a whole bunch of kids books and this was a good trick, Pete. So this was about 20 years ago. I had just written my first book and uh, we were at the, uh, we were signing books for people. And he took my book and he said, Danny, would you sign your book for me? And I said, oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. And then I looked behind him and he had four of his books for sale. And I'm like, oh, will you sign these four books for me, Norton? And I learned, oh, I got to write a lot more books so I can <laughs> sell, more, sell more books. That was a nice little trick he taught me. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. It's a great way of doing it, isn't it? That's so much. Um, <laughs> Thomas, would you bookmark or, or fold a page? Which is which? Oh, I have bookmarks. I have bookmarks. So you scribble all over, but bookmarks to to do it. Uh, do you have a preferred time of day for for reading? 
Well, I, I always, you know, I start and end my day reading like something out of the Bible, something to inspire me. Um, but I try to find time. I, I'm horrible. I can't really watch television just solely watching. I'm always reading while I'm watching TV. Uh, my dad had that habit. So I, I, you know, my kids are talking to me. My wife's talking to me. I'm reading a book. I've got a, a glass of a, a, a tasty beverage beside me and the TV's on. Uh, people don't understand how I'm able to concentrate, but I compartmentalize. <laughs> Well, that's another question is like, do you prefer silence or a noisy, not noisy environment, a non-silent environment, let's say? Yeah, I don't, it, noisy is fine for me. I was actually at a conference, um, great, great author, Roland Smith. Uh, Roland Smith, he's like the world's uh, leading expert on like gray wolves or something. He worked at the Portland Zoo and uh, he's wrote a great book on Mount Everest Peak. That book got me to never want to climb Mount Everest. It, it was a great book. He talks, he talks about how much we're destroying the environment by, by climbing the mountain. It was, a, it was a really good book. But he, he had a great tip, Pete. He told me, he said, you know, people say, oh, I would be an author if I had a cabin in the mountains. And he said, if I had a cabin in the mountains, I'd probably be looking at the mountains. I wouldn't be writing. He's like, in order to be a writer, you got to write all the time. He's like, so before I give a speech, if I have 15 minutes, I'm scratching notes on a, a yellow legal pad. When I'm waiting for an airplane, I'm writing notes. He said, you make it into whenever you have a chance, you write. And I was like, that's fascinating. That's, that was very interesting to me. I mean, it, you can also create the discipline. I mean, Woody Allen for 50 years every day from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., seven days a week, he writes. I'm like, wow, that's probably why he's come out with a movie every single year for 50 years, plus books and short stories. He has that discipline. But if you don't have that discipline, you need the discipline of uh, writing wherever you have the chance. And the same thing with reading. Uh, I actually love traveling because I know if I'm traveling, I get plenty of time to read. If I'm on an airplane or on a train, those are my favorite places to read are airplanes and trains and um, it just transports you. I love it. Yeah. Literally being transported and mentally being transported and emotionally. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> humans or non-human characters, any preference? Humans. Hmm. Interesting. Why? Non-humans don't really hold it. I, I, I want to hear the human experience. I'm much more, maybe it's cause I'm into nonfiction. I want to, I want to experience, uh, the ups and downs of, of this person. I mean, I just read a book, uh, American Caesar by William Manchester. I read the book because I had just read a trilogy by William Manchester on Winston Churchill, which was fat. I, I'm now convinced, Pete, that Winston Churchill must have been the most important person to live on the planet in the 20th century. I've always said like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela. Without Winston Churchill, we're all Nazis. I'm convinced of that. This guy was amazing. I mean, he had all kinds of faults. I mean, Everybody has their faults, but he was amazing. But it was such a well-written trilogy. I read American Caesar, which is about uh, General MacArthur, the American general. And I was interested in this book because I had read a biography on Harry Truman, President Truman, who fired Douglas MacArthur. And uh, it made MacArthur sound like a real jerk. And so when I read this book, I was like, oh, this guy's a jerk. And as I was reading, I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's pretty amazing. I mean, he's definitely got an ego. Any any leader has an ego. But, he, you know, uh, during the war, he actually really doesn't believe in war. He 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 wouldn't commit his troops to any kind of suicide mission. And they say, like, for every American soldier that died under his command, 10 Japanese soldiers died. I mean, he was incredible. Uh, and I didn't realize that he was put in charge of Japan right after the war. And, like, the Japanese loved the guy. He's really the reason that Japan became a first, first world country was because of MacArthur implementing all these systems 
I mean, he had plenty of faults, plenty of all these people had faults, but he was, I'm like, wow. So that was interesting. That's what I love about reading different books. I'm like, oh, I get a different perspective this way. So that's, yeah, I like people. I like to find out about people, you know, not, I mean, and of course I love Star Wars and those types of things, but they're just not as interesting to me. <laughs> it's the relatability, right? Because I mean, it's, it's like a story because we can imagine ourselves in, as being yeah, a character exactly. in the story. So it's, exactly. yeah, it does make sense, you know, I'm, I don't see myself as a Peter Rabbit. I just see myself as a yeah, whatever, yeah. right? You know, so it's <laughs> Desert Island Discs, you've, you've space for three books. What are you taking? Oh, dear. Uh, well, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm required to say the Bible, so I'll say the Bible. Um, You're required. You know, I'd the, I'd, I'd, I would probably take the, uh, the complete works of Shakespeare. Uh, so one, here's a little t- trick for your listeners is on my, on my phone, I didn't realize you could, program things every day. And so I started doing this. And so there's, uh, there's things I want to learn like quotes and things. And so, uh, every day now on my phone at four Oh three, because it's from King Henry, the fifth, uh, act four scene three is, uh, Henry, the fifth St. Crispin's day speech where he totally fires up his troops and it's a pretty long passage. And so I'm trying to memorize this, you know, cause I used to, uh, you know, I know, I know like Julius, you know, I know, uh, I, uh, my Mark Anthony speech from Julius Caesar, uh, I know those speeches, but, uh, Shakespeare really was amazing. Okay. So that's a long answer. So the Bible, uh, Shakespeare. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give a totally different book now, a, a personal development book, the success principles by Jack Canfield. Uh, after I read the book, I told my coach at the time, I said, this book's amazing. He's put a $25,000 coaching program into a $20 book. The stories are phenomenal. The, the points are phenomenal. I'm like, it was worth the book just for the bibliography. Gave me so many great books to read. I'm like, and I've made it my mission that this year I'm going to meet Jack Canfield. And he said, well, come to my event in January or in uh, April and you'll meet him because he's coming to speak. And I was actually scheduled to speak that day. and I actually. Uh, rescheduled that speaking appearance to fly to go meet Jack Canfield. He was very, he was very gracious and nice. And he's actually one of the few people in our industry where I've never heard a negative thing ever said about him. A lot of people you hear negative things and Jack seems very authentic, but the success principles is, I mean, he's more famous for your listeners. He, he started the chicken soup for the soul series, which made him into a, almost a billionaire. Uh, but the success principles, that book has wonderful stories in it, uh, but it also has really great uh, facts, some some really good guidance for people. Um, and it's not, that's a big book. I gave you three, all three of those books are thick because if I'm on an island, I only get, uh, actually, I should have said, I, the, the probably the proper answer to your question is the book, uh, How to Build a Boat uh, to Get Off the Island. <laughs> Yeah, that's a sort of some sort of knowledge base. It's like, no, no, we're just going to sit here and get busy with our time, not the uh, sort of how-to guide to escaping from a desert island. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's. Uh... Tell us what uh, what what are you great at and what are you terrible at? I'm great at getting people inspired and pumping them up. Uh, I'm really bad at giving short answers to short questions. <laughs> Shows enthusiasm. There's nothing wrong with that. We'll, we'll yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I love, it. I love it. And tell me, what what are you really proud of? I'm proud of my three children. I'm, uh, you know, I'm proud of my wife. is a wonderful person. Um, I'm proud to 
I made a conscious decision several years ago only to associate with people that lift me up. And I've, I've been uh, blessed to work with some really great people and, uh, you know, things like this podcast are what feed my soul. Uh, so I, I, I really thank you for, for letting me just share with you for, for this time, uh, Pete, and thanks for all that you do. I mean, you're, you're a, a bright light in a dimming, rapidly dimming world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds great. Sounds great. And um, tell me what's, what's a bit of a guilty habit for you, Danny? Guilty habit is watching golf and drinking scotch. <laughs> it's my, there's nothing more. I'll sit there and I, I, I mean, I have my book in front of me and I have my glass of scotch or a seven and seven and I love watching. I just absolutely, uh, I'm no good at golf, but I absolutely love it. And my wife asks, why do you love it? And I'm like, well, first of all, they call their own penalties. There's not any other sport where it's still a gentleman's game. And then I, I, I also love, I'm like, you see this, this two foot putt, if he misses it, it's going to cost him a half a million dollars. It's the only sport where your paycheck is determined based on your performance. Uh, and it's also, I just feel a lot of people don't know this, at least on the, on the professional tour in America is every tournament they have half of the purse goes to local charities. People don't know that the PGA tour has raised over a billion dollars for charities around uh, the United States. And I, I mean, I, and they don't boast about it. I, I just love that. It makes me so proud of them. So that's that's my guilty habit is watching golf. <laughs> well, what's your what's your go to in the Scotch department? In the Scotch department, well, I although it's interesting, Pete, because I've actually, uh, you know, I, here I am a proud of proud Irish heritage, and I, I I'm not a big fan of Jamesons, but I. Uh, I've actually become quite fond of Kentucky bourbons. Uh, so I'll, I'll drink. And then I found out, so reading a book on bourbon, this is fascinating. I didn't know that in Kentucky, there's a law that the bourbon, the barrel can only be used once. And so that after they use it once, they sell the barrels to all these scotch companies in Ireland and Scotland because they can reuse them or whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, there's all these specific requirements. Um, but I, I've never had a scotch I, I would turn down, Pete. That, that's the answer to that question. <laughs> if, it's, if it's wet, it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's good. And preferably with good company. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So tell me, I mean, if you were to try and describe your fire in the belly in one or two words, Danny, what would it be? Uh, inspire people to read. That's my fire in the belly. Um, you know, uh, Isaac Asimov, the science fiction author, who I believe he's got the world record for the most uh, the most words ever written, the most books ever written, because he always did everything first draft. As he was dying, they asked him if he had any regrets in life. And he said, I wish I'd learned how to type faster. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then that was an interesting story. I never knew this. The Guinness Book of World Records, I never realized was based on a salesman at the Guinness brewery was trying to figure out a way to sell Guinness beer. And he's, he was in a bar and everybody was giving all these facts and stuff. And so that's why they created the Guinness book of world records was to sell Guinness. I had no idea about that. That was a fascinating story to me. <laughs> Next time I read it, I'll have to get myself a pint of Guinness to go with it. Absolutely. <laughs> don't, let that, don't, don't let getting the book to prevent you from getting your pints. <laughs> Oh, I love it. So tell us, where can people reach out, learn more? You've been such a brilliant guest here. I want people to be able to, to reach out and find out more about you. I'll make sure you can put it in the show notes because I'm going to give three websites, Pete. Uh, first of all, I told you about my book club, lazyreaders.com. And by all means, if there's books that people want to recommend to me, tell me about them because I'll read them. 
second, my, my online reading engagement program is called the reading habit.com, the reading habit.com. And that's a program where in, in just over two months, we'll get your kid to read more, read better, and most importantly, to love reading. And then third, as a, as a thank you to everybody for hanging in there with me today, if you go to freereadingtraining.com, freereadingtraining.com, I'm going to give everybody a complimentary copy of uh, one of my books, Read, Lead, and Succeed, which is a book I wrote for a school principal who was trying to keep his uh, faculty positively engaged. And so I said, okay, I'll write you a book. So every week I give you a concept, an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, a book recommendation on a book you should read, but you're probably too lazy because you're an adult. So I also give you a children's picture book recommendation that demonstrates the same concept in five minutes. Uh, and I'm also going to give you access to a reading challenge I did with parents. Uh, I think that the challenge lasts for a week for a one hour a day where it's just me rapid fire, giving you all kinds of ideas on how to get your kid reading for fun at home. Because again, the more excited we get kids to read, the more likely they are to read and the more they read, the better they get. That's a thank you to you, Pete, and to all of your listeners for this podcast. Well, thank you, Danny. I thank you for, for sharing that and for the, the hard work you're putting in. I think it's, it is genuinely life-changing for, for a number of people. So well done. That's awesome. Thank you. you. You got the fire in my belly burning right now. I'm all excited. Thank you, Pete, for that. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. So is there a final message you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, I can tell you exactly the same thing. I usually, whether I'm teaching my little ones or my older ones, as they exit my classroom, I always have to give them the same refrain. I say, remember kids, education is valuable, but execution is priceless. Knowledge is not power. Only applied knowledge is power. Knowing what the right thing to do and doing the right thing are two different things. So go out in the world and do the right thing and make this world a better place. Fantastic. Donnie, you've been awesome. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And no doubt we'll hear from you again. Thanks, Pete. God bless. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon. And it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.